Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. We're actually going to call up Ben Midavane to do the Bible reading for us. Let's give it up for Ben Midavane. I, um, I, was, I was chatting to Keith Dunn the other day and he said, Murray, you're very mean. I said, why am I mean? He goes, you're getting Ben Midavane to read a very heavy passage of the Bible. I hope he doesn't get like nightmares or something from it. But I said, you know what, Keith? Ben's a cool kid. He's very grounded. He's very tough. I reckon this will be all right for him. So what I'll do is would you prefer to set up on this or on that mic stand? I reckon this is all right for you, yeah? Perfect. There we go. So we're reading uh, this morning from Acts 5, 1 to 11. Over to you. Ananias and Sapphira. A man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, also sold some land. He kept part of the money for himself. Sapphira knew he had kept it. He bought the rest of it and put it down at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why did you let Satan fill your heart? He made you lie to the Holy Spirit. You have kept some of the holy money you received for the land. Didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, you could have used the money as you wished. What made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied to just anyone. You have lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. All who heard what had happened were filled with fear. Some young men came and wrapped up his body. They carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, the wife of Ananias came in. She didn't know what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias sold the land for? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter asked her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, you can hear the steps of the men who buried your husband. They are at the door. They will carry you out also. At that very moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in. They saw that Sapphira was dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The whole church and all who heard about these things were filled with fear. Ben, let's give it up for Ben. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate that. All right. Well, let me quickly pray for us before we get into the Word today. Father God, we thank you that your Word is complicated because, God, you are a divine God who understands greater than we could possibly understand. But God, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would help provide wisdom and discernment and insight to this really difficult passage this morning. And Lord, I pray that you could open our hearts and our minds and our ears and our spirits to receive a word, not from me, but from you, God. May you just use me as a instrument this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Keith Dunn wasn't wrong, was he? It's a... It's a heavy passage this morning, and that was kind of why I chose it. If you read the pastor's desk, I sort of teased that for me personally, I think this is the most difficult passage of the New Testament. Like, essentially what has happened is Jesus has come, 
He has lived his ministry. He has fulfilled it. He has been crucified on a cross, died for our sins. He's been resurrected on the third day. He's ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. I thought we were living under a new covenant at this point in the story. Weren't we living under a new covenant of grace and love and forgiveness for all people who are followers of God that there's not this sort of severe punishment for sin anymore? And I mean, let's be real. The sin that Ananias and Sapphira did, which like it was a sin, but ultimately what they did was they sold their entire property. They gave an amount that was big enough for it to be believable that it was the whole amount to the church. And they lied and kept a little bit back for themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone from our church, let's just say hypothetically, sold their property for $1.2 million, right? And then they gave a million dollars to the church saying that it was the full amount and kept back $200,000 for themselves. If we found out, we'd probably be like, oh, like, that was a weird thing to do and like, probably wasn't the best thing that you lied, but I mean, you gave a million dollars to the church. You just sold your property and gave this massive gift, this generous gift to the church. And yet we see in this passage that they lie to Peter and the church with this offering that they give and the judgment is severe. So... What is going on here? Because when I read this passage the first time, I'm not going to lie, it sort of challenged my theology, right? This isn't how I understand the new covenant that we're living in to be manifested. So what's going on? Well, I think whenever we read a passage of Scripture that challenges our understanding of God or ourselves or the church, a passage of Scripture that challenges our theology, we need to take a step back for a second and think about how it fits in to our greater puzzle of theology. Because the mistake that we can make is to get a certain puzzle piece of scripture and try to, you know, with sort of erudite apologetics, thumb it into a place where it doesn't belong. But ultimately, that's not good theology. So when we have a piece of scripture that doesn't fit into what we understand our theology to be, We need to take a step back and we need to think, okay, where maybe have I taken a slight misstep in my understanding? And I think for me, as I was journeying through this passage, I pinpointed at least one sort of theological misstep that I had taken, which was that Old Testament God and New Testament God aren't consistent in their actions. See, I think a lot of us can actually be guilty of viewing Old Testament God as sort of old school handlebar, stained singlet, moustache dad who kind of comes in if his footy team is lost and punches a hole in the wall and all the kids are walking on eggshells because they don't know what he's going to do next. But then, you know, New Testament stepdad comes in with his knitted turtleneck and acoustic guitar and just wants to, you know, spread the love and take us all ice skating. And, you know, if I take off one of my ice skates and try to throw it at my sister's head, he's not going to correct me because he's just here to peace and love, man. It's all cool. But the reality is neither of these fathers are good fathers. And God is a good father and he's a consistent father. He's not a unpredictable, wrathful God who just does things for the sake of it. And he's not a doormat of a God who just allows us to continue to live in sin. He is a good, consistent 
father. So I think what we need to do this morning is I think we need to do a bit of an investigative work. I think we need to understand that if Old Testament God and New Testament God are consistent, maybe we can go back and look at some moments in the Old Testament where similar things have happened, take that information and then apply it to this story in the New Testament. I think we need to establish an elite task force known as the Scriptural Victims Unit. Are we ready? Let's do it. In the New Covenant Bible system, God's people are represented by two separate yet equally important truths. The wrath of a consistent Father God who demands justice, and the grace of a crucified Christ who sanctifies offenders. These are their stories. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through some stories of the Old Testament. We're going to visit some suspects. We're going to interview them. We're going to figure out what happened then in this story with Ananias and Sapphira. And the first place I want to go to is all the way back to the very beginning with another husband and wife duo, Adam and Eve. Let's go pay them a visit. So in Genesis 3, 6 to 8, we know the story pretty well, but I'll quickly just highlight some important moments in it. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden that God has placed them in, a perfect, utopic place where they're in perfect relationship with God. And they are told that they can eat from any tree of the garden except from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when the woman, Eve, saw the fruit of the tree and that it was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, you might be thinking this is a bit of a stretch, Mars, like to connect these two stories, like their husband and wife, they both sin. I mean, are we sure that there's a connection here? Well, I think there is. And I think that there's actually some further clues in the text, including this idea of footsteps being heard. The footsteps of God coming to judge a sinful husband and wife. The footsteps of God that are echoing all the way from Genesis 3 into this story in Acts 5. And it's really, really important. And I'm hoping that as we've been journeying in looking at the uh, scripture as one unified story that leads to Jesus, that we see that these moments, they're not just coincidences. That the way that Jewish writers wrote was very different to the way that we understand narrative today. And this parallel is intentional. And it's trying to link the reader to this story, this idea that they hear the footsteps of coming judgment. Because let's be real, it's a bit of a weird turn of phrase to hear the footsteps of someone coming to judge you. It's a very intentional echoing. And ultimately, what this story can tell us about Ananias and Sapphira is the fact that they've got something else in common. Because in Genesis 3, to 23, the Lord God says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. We must not be, or he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. See, in both of these stories, both in Genesis 3 and in Acts 5, these couples are stepping into a new beginning of God's story. I mean, the book of Genesis literally means beginning, the book of beginnings. So we can understand that the Garden of Eden was the first beginning in the beginning. But what has happened in this passage in Acts 5 is, as I have said, this is a new covenant era that has just been inaugurated through the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is a new era, a new chapter, a new beginning in God's story. And what happens throughout scriptures, which we'll see in a few more stories today, is when God's people are being led into a new era, a new beginning of his story, that the first people who are seen to breach the commandments, who are seen to bring sin into that community, are judged particularly harsh. Because ultimately, this new beginning in each moment of the Bible is like a newborn baby. And a newborn baby can't have illness in it. It needs to be made sure that this is a healthy new beginning that is able to flourish and continue on because if it is corrupted at the very beginning, it is not going to work out. It is going to spiral down and down. So that's the first similarity that we see. Ananias and Sapphira are at a new beginning of God's story, a new chapter in his history. But I think there's a few more stories that we can look at in the Old Testament which can shed a bit more light on why maybe Ananias and Sapphira were judged in this way. Let's go to roughly 1450 BC, Nadab and Abihu in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Bit of a deep cut of a story. These are Aaron, the original Levite priest in the Old Testament's two sons. Let's read the passage in Leviticus 10. Aaron's sons, so the high priest's sons, who were also priests, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. And Aaron remains silent. God has just struck his two sons dead, consumed them with fire, and Aaron remains silent. He's got nothing to say because he understands that Nadab and Abihu were set apart as chosen priests and that they completely disrespected their role and Aaron's role by going into the Holy of Holies, the center of the tabernacle where God's very presence dwelt and giving an improper offering that they weren't supposed to give. And this idea that they are both desanctifying the very temple or tabernacle of God and disrespecting their roles as priests in God's kingdom is actually also what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. Because in 1 Peter 2, 5, 9, 
he writes, You also, including Ananias and Sapphira, who were part of the church, are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, jump forward to verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, in the new covenant system, the Holy Spirit has come. And as the Bible says in both Corinthians and Ephesians, you are a body that has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. So you are the temple as a believer of Jesus. And you are one of the priests. So just in the same way that Nadab and Abihu had that authority and that importance and that respect that they had to give, so did Ananias and Sapphira, and so do we today. And this is ultimately the second issue, that they were the temple and they were part of God's chosen priests now under this new covenant system. But what happened was they were irreverent with both their offering and the way that they lied to Peter about it. And they are soiling this new season of both the temple and the priesthood that now all of God's people have been welcomed into. Let's check out one last story from the Old Testament. Achan in the promised land of Israel around 1250 BC. This is as Joshua and the Israelite in the Israelite tribe have just entered the promised land. And we see in Joshua 6, 18 to 19, God says, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. These devoted things were treasure that the Israelite tribes were taking from the Canaanite villages, the sinful, depraved Canaanite villages, as they came in and took over the promised land. So these devoted things were sort of the spoils of this holy war. And God says, otherwise, if you make... Uh, if you take these devoted things, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Jump forward to Joshua 7.1. The Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And in the next kind of verses in Joshua 7, it says, So Joshua sends messengers, and they ran to the tent. And there it was in Achan's tent, hidden with the silver underneath. They took the things from Achan's tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. And Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. See, Achan, just like Ananias and Sapphira, is exhibiting these toxic characteristics of greed and dishonesty, which God has said just in that earlier passage, if you bring these devoted things and steal them and keep them for yourself, you will defile the entire Israelite camp. You will defile this new season that I'm bringing you into. And this is, again paralleled characteristics that Ananias and Sapphira are exhibiting with Achan. So if we kind of put these three stories side by side, we see that both Adam and Eve, Nadab and Abihu and Achan enter a new chapter, a new beginning in God's story. Each of them take something which is forbidden, which is the ultimate, ultimately part of the sin. They sin 
for Adam and Eve in the garden temple. This is what we need to understand about the way that Eden is presented to us in the Bible. It is the first temple. It is a holy temple. And this is the language that we need to understand the garden of Eden with. Likewise, Nadab and Abihu sin in the tabernacle, a tent. And Achan, interestingly, hides his sin in a tent. Hmm. Fascinating. And then what we see is Adam and Eve obviously experience a spiritual death by being exiled from Eden. But both Nadab and Abihu and Achan, both consumed by fire. What a coincidence. Or maybe there's echoing of stories that the biblical writers are wanting us to follow in this story. So that when we get to our people in question... We have all of this background knowledge to inform us about the fact that ultimately Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of a bunch of things. They'd corrupted their new beginning as they'd entered into a new covenant. They were God's new holy temple and they were his chosen priests, but they were irreverent of the very Holy Spirit that had ordained them as such and had filled them to make them the Holy Spirit. And they're dishonest and comparatively to the rest of the church at that point in the story in Acts, kind of greedy. But I want to leave on a high note because this has been pretty bleak, hasn't it? Because what Luke, the writer of Acts, is actually doing is creating a little bit of a parallel for us. And just before the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the sort of archetypal what not to do, he gives us another story. Barnabas. And Barnabas is a really interesting character because his name is Joseph, another name. He's a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. And they sold a field he owned, oh, sorry, and he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, on face value, you think, okay, cool. There's an example of someone who was generous and humble, who was servant-hearted and did the right thing. There's another interesting thing to note in this, that Barnabas was a Levite. Levites were the original priests, right? But part of the rules with Levites is that they weren't able to own land. So why does Barnabas own land? Well, there was one exception to Levites being able to own land. They were able to own a burial plot the place where when he died, he would be buried. Because according to Jewish custom, a body was not able to stay out of a grave for more than three days. It had to be buried. And if it wasn't buried, it was so dishonoring. It was so unkosher. It was seen as so far removed from God's plan that it would defile you. And the Jews still believed in a resurrection. So this idea that a body needed to be buried was an important investment in his future in his eternity see by this act of generosity Barnabas is not only saying everything that I have on this side of eternity belongs to God he's saying everything I have on the other side of eternity belongs to God he's saying I believe in a resurrection through Christ not through following the old covenant system but by understanding it through a lens of the new covenant See, Barnabas wasn't afraid of the Old Testament. He wasn't afraid of a wrathful God who would smite him. He wasn't afraid of death and judgment because he knew the law, the new law, 
inaugurated through Jesus Christ. What we see in this story is the sort of characteristics which flourish in a community of God's people. Ananias and Sapphira were exuding characteristics which were going to be toxic and ultimately detrimental to the health of God's church. I want to encourage us today as we walk away from this passage, hopefully with a bit more of an understanding of a consistent God who does want to extend love, not just to us, but through us. Who can we be a Barnabas for today in our community? Not an Ananias and Sapphira looking after our own interests, even at the expense of others, because ultimately their sin discouraged the whole community. But how can we be a Barnabas, a son or daughter of encouragement this morning? Because this same blessing that Jesus has extended to us is meant to flow out of us like rivers of living water. How can you be a Barnabas today? Let us pray. God, we thank you that you are a complex God. We thank you that your word is intricately layered and richly woven for us to understand that you are a good father and a consistent father, a father who does punish to the third and fourth, but extends grace and love to the thousandth generation. And God, we thank you that as we dive deeper into scripture, we get to more deeply understand your character and not just your character, but the character that you desire of us in this community and in our wider worlds. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are powerful. We thank you that you are living and active. And Holy Spirit, we pray for you to come afresh on this community this morning. May we be known for the way that we love one another. May we be known by the way we encourage one another. May we be known by the way that we extend servant-hearted love to one another. And as people from the outside see that, may they not see us, but see you, God. Grow us into a closer likeness of Christ today. Help us to think about how we can be a Barnabas in this community, in our lives. We give all we have to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.